Hello and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp, the podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century and most notably throughout the reign of Her Majesty, Queen Victoria. Episode 42, Into the Den. There are times when doing research for a podcast can drive you insane, especially for something like actual history where you're expected to get things right. I do love the research and I really love the writing because the real challenge and satisfaction for me is that I present in a way that makes it like telling a story and keeping you entertained around the fire we metaphorically sit around. If you're currently on a train, in a car or going for a run, just work with me here, okay? This one is going to be more than a little dark, so some listener age discretion is advised. Those warnings you get on TV saying what's coming, well, in this episode, drug use is going to be rampant. Also, it's incredibly fascinating and I couldn't help myself. Caveat, I am not a chemist and I am going to skim over the complexities because this is a storytelling and not a lecture. Papava somniferum is better known to all of us today as the opium poppy. Technically, the juice from the poppy is called a latex, which is a substance suspended in liquid. Opium is the dried version of this. Using this dried product, you can then make morphine. Keep playing chemically and you'll end up with heroin, but that came much later on. Another product that came from opium was the liquid laudanum. You might know it from movies and fiction, but it was a mixture of about 10% opium, along with a combination of herbs in liquid. A Swiss alchemist had created it in the 1500s, but it's believed opium had first appeared in Europe when soldiers brought it back from the Crusades. Now, I am sure we're all aware of the whole snake oil salesman trope, where finding a shifty-looking guy selling some liquid that is the cure for all ailments that you might have. Most of these basically contained some herbs and a lot of alcohol. So while it not make you better, at least you felt better being sick. But aside from these pseudo-cures, laudanum was a whole different animal. It became known as the aspirin of the 19th century and was used for basically relieving any pain you could think of. It was especially focused towards women and what were then known as air quote women's troubles with much of the marketing during the 19th century being aimed towards offering them relief. Opium-based products could genuinely help you medically. It was an excellent product for alleviating some of the effects of dysentery and cholera. It gave a relaxing euphoric effect which helped people that had problems with anxiety. Other ailments like rheumatism or even coughing fits were treated with it. If you had a child or baby that needed calming down, well, then give it laudanum. In this latter scenario, there were even specific products for children called Godfrey's Cordial or Mother's Friend, the liquid consisted of opium, water and treacle. 
Laudanum was as easy a way to take the drug as any other, just being a liquid, and the relaxing, mildly euphoric effects that it gave led to it being used recreationally. A standard adult dose was around 20 drops, and you could buy this for just a penny, so with it being so affordable, its use soon became commonplace throughout society. And it needs to be remembered just how hard Victorian life was. Pain and physical struggles were a daily occurrence. Having a liquid you could take for a penny that might take the edge off your pain of aching joints, the diarrhoea you had because of the rancid meat you forced yourself to eat last night, or calm that screaming, starving child in the cot in the corner of the mud-floored room you called home, I have to argue why wouldn't you use it? And, of course, given the era that defined class division, your pills differed. Buying a pill containing opium in it and being working class, yours was lacquered in a varnish that made it easier to swallow. But hey, if you had the bank, well, you could have bought your pills that were coated in actual silver. But that's just for you. Toffs and the posh sorts, like me for example, we bought ours coated in our metal of choice, gold. It also needs to be remembered that people had no idea of the addictive qualities of opium, and it continued being used throughout the early 1800s, and then along came Thomas de Quincey's autobiography that was aptly titled Confessions of an English Opium Eater. In his work, de Quincey wrote about the famous poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge and his Kubla Khan. Written in 1797 but published in 1816, Coleridge claims that he wrote the poem after an opium-influenced dream. I'm sure many of you have some knowledge of the poem, even if it's only from the 1980 film Xanadu. The first few lines might come to mind. Quote, in Xanadu de Kubla Khan, a stately pleasure dome decree, where Alf, the sacred river, ran through caverns measureless to man, down to a sunless sea. End quote. So, throughout the 1800s, opium moved through society at all levels without a lot of control. As I've already mentioned, aside from the questionable medical benefits, people were taking it for recreational use which brings us to the infamous opium dens. Many of us have no doubt seen these in movies or written of in novels. We find our protagonist attempting to gain some sort of hidden knowledge that will solve a crime only the city underground knows. Or a character might be seeking oblivion in their addiction and stagger down darkened London streets, then into Chinatown, which would have been in the Limehouse area of London, whereby they're guided to a cramped, smoky-filled room and given a pipe to use, and as the first puffs began to take effect, they slump back in a drug haze with the other opium eaters. This was, well, to some degree, the case in places such as San Francisco and other western cities with high Chinese populations. Now, I mean this is no slight to the Chinese. Simply put, it had been used in China for centuries and they saw a market with supplying it to other people. Remember, at this time, it's not illegal and those involved were a very small proportion of the population. 
and there were tens of thousands of Chinese emigrating to America as opposed to the much smaller numbers moving to London. And most of those in London were males involved in the maritime trades. But like we still see in movies in modern times, I'm looking at you, Johnny Depp in the 2001 From Hell film about finding Jack the Ripper, literary fiction is more responsible for the opium dens in London than any emigrant ever might have been. By the way, if you haven't seen that film, check it out. It's pretty good. Johnny Depp, Heather Graham, Ian Holm, also known as Dr. Cornelius from The Fifth Element, or Bilbo Baggins, all star. Welcome to my five-second movie review. <laughs> I think we can all agree that Victorian-era writers liked sordid, dramatic, and dangerous places. They're perfect for drawing a reader into a place they're fascinated by, but no, they'll never get to see. The idea of a seedy place that presents immoral temptation is always going to draw people in. As the legendary Oscar Wilde wrote in his 1891 novel of The Picture of Dorian Gray, quote, There were opium dens where one could buy oblivion, dens of horror where the memory of old sins could be destroyed by the madness of sins that were new. End quote. You have to love his turn of phrase. Sorry to possibly burst your seedy London opium bubble, but in consolation, the dens did actually exist. But it was mainly a market that was catering to the sailors. The Limehouse district was an area that revolved around shipping, and it was among sailors that had travelled the world that you would find those that smoked opium as an escape. Combine this with the only real Chinese population in London being in this area, and well, that's where you got your opium dens. I'll post some photos up on the Instagram account for you to see of what this time looked like. Pretty amazing, really, even though they weren't as prominent as I thought. But like you, I'm still fascinated with them anyway. Now I am going to horrify real historians everywhere and make this next part obscenely short. The East India Company was pretty much the first global corporation like you might think of Apple or Microsoft. It was in charge of all trade in Eastern Asia and like modern corporations, they were a monster that should have been controlled. I could literally create a second podcast just about them, but trust me, we'll see them again. Most importantly, at this time, they controlled the import of tea from China to the United Kingdom. And I cannot begin to express just how much the English love their tea. I know a lot of Australians do, but I do remember realising just how much the English loved it when I was in the town of Whitby. A friend had said to try the fish and chips there because they were amazing. Firstly, he was right. If you get to visit Whitby, go eat some. But I was laughing because your fish and chips came with a pot of tea. Gives you some idea. <laughs> tea is more than a big deal in the 1800s. Fortunes were made from it and everyone wanted to drink it. 
so much so that it was causing a very big economic problem for the kingdom. By 1830, annual consumption of tea was at just over a pound per person in the whole population. That's around about 30 million pounds or nearly 14 million kilos. Think of any time that you might have picked up a tea bag. You know how light they are. So imagine just how much tea is needed to make up those sorts of volumes. Any time your country is paying more to another for what you need, the imbalance can cause economic problems. And this was compounded by the fact that China insisted only on payment for tea in silver. And this meant hard cash for product. No credit. But tea was what the people craved, and the importers struggled to meet demand, and this was where the troubles began. Money was bleeding out of the United Kingdom, and they were becoming beholden to a foreign nation. So, by proxy to the United Kingdom, the East India Company did what anyone would do when trying to make up the imbalance. They sold drugs. Okay, kind of a bad joke, but not actually a joke. The East India Company, which I'll call the EIC from here on, during this time pretty much owned the economy of India. And the Bengal region was where the opium poppy could be grown, and most certainly was. And it was really good quality opium too. So the East India Company, in conjunction with smugglers, sold opium into China and only took silver in payment. So to reiterate, lots of silver being paid for tea, and to counter the economic disparity, the EIC only took silver for their opium. And back in 1797, they imported around 4,000 chests of opium. That's about 77 kilos. By 1833, this was at 30,000 chests, and it increased throughout the century. Drug trade into China began to spin out of control. The Chinese emperor repeatedly issued edicts banning opium, only to be ignored by the smugglers. And then in 1834, the EIC had their monopoly over the region cease, partly because of their known involvement in the opium trade. But while they had lost the monopoly, they were still the predominant market force in the region. A letter written in 1839 by the Chinese High Commissioner Lin Tsi Su asked for the trade to stop was published in the London Times newspaper. It seemed to have no effect, so Commissioner Lin ordered the seizure of all opium in Canton where all the trading took place. Charles Elliott, Chief Superintendent of British Trade in China, was attempting to defuse the situation and bought all the opium and gave it to Commissioner Lin to destroy. Oh, and this was around about 1.3 tonne of the drug. Not gram, not ounce, but tonne. I'm covering a lot of stories here, and certainly a whole series of podcasts, but the relationship between China and Britain continued to deteriorate, and with Britain bringing in more troops, we then get what became known as the First Opium War. I mean... Let's face it, this doesn't work out too well for the United Kingdom in terms of PR. In their defence, this drive of selling drugs was largely because of an uncontrolled corporation taking liberties on the other side of the world without proper oversight.
This war continued from 1839 through to 1842, and because of their superior military might, the United Kingdom defeated China. In the treaty, Britain received huge monetary payments, but they also gained access to a number of ports, including Shanghai and Canton. More importantly, it was this war that gave Britain a particular territory, Hong Kong. Up until 1997, aside from a small gap thanks to World War II, Hong Kong would be an important jewel in the empire. It gave the kingdom access to the Asian markets and a base from which to operate from. And it all happened thanks to opium. The fantastic author James Clavell, and yes I am very much a fan, wrote a novel called Taipan, which occurs around this time period. They even made a miniseries out of it, starring an Australian, Brian Brown. Great book, you should check it out, lots of drama and goings on. Thanks for listening to my 5 second book review. <laughs> the British continued importing opium into China, because at this point they couldn't be stopped, and it again escalated into the Second Opium War. This went on from 1856 to 1860, and also included the French, and yet again resulted in the Chinese tasting defeat. Well, not so much tasting it as having it shoveled down their throats. The British Franco troops fought their way into the heart of Beijing, looted the city and destroyed the Imperial Summer Palace. Additionally, the Chinese ceded the Kowloon Peninsula to the British, which was more land near Hong Kong. Russia had also been playing games on the northern border during this time, and Prince Gong, who was the Prince Regent at the time, signed both deals, and in Russia's case, he ceded 1.5 million kilometres of land to the Russians. It all gets complicated on that side of things, with Russian access to the Sea of Japan being lost, and Korea not knowing for 20 years that their lands had been given away by Prince Gong, but not my podcast. So, this was how things sat at the 1860s, and as I've said before, well, the times they are are changing. People were starting to realise that opium wasn't all it seemed to be. Medical professionals were starting to recognise the negative effects of the drug. Charles Dickens, in his last novel, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, which was published in 1870, showed opium dens in the negative light they needed. He was the equivalent of pop culture in his day, and Dickens, as well as other authors, emphasised the Chinese population in London as well as their gambling and opium dens, making it seem to be a much larger problem. And in 1868, the Pharmacy Act tried to control the sale of opium-based products and made it only available from registered chemists. But this was kind of pointless, as there was no limit on the amounts that they could sell, so it was a typical political ill-educated move. But as the 19th century drew to a close and we saw the invention of aspirin, many doctors, who were becoming concerned about the levels of opium being administered to patients, preferred aspirin and prescribed it accordingly. However, it did continue being used into the 20th century, Later writers such as Sax Roma highlighted the exotic nature of opium use and the machinations of those controlling the supply in his hugely successful 1912 work, The Mystery of Dr. Fu Manchu. 
It was the first in a series of books that created a Western fear of the Oriental control of Western society. Creating a brilliant man intent on controlling the world, the books played into the xenophobia of the time and brought about the term yellow peril. That is, Western society was in danger because of Asian subterfuge. Opium use fell into this category and the public began seeing it as something subversive in a treacherous way and legal channels were used to stop the trade. This, combined with the agriculture of tea outside of China in the English colony of India no less, saw less need for the opium trade to continue as well. And without the economic need for the drug trade, it gradually died out. Well, at least as far as the British Empire was concerned. So the opium den fell into myth and legend. But make no mistake, they did exist. The notorious opium den of Dickens' novel was based on one owned by a man by the name of John Johnston. His real name was R. Singh, and he was known to make a wonderful mix of opium to smoke. So much so that the Chinese sailors to the Limehouse region would visit his den for the quality of his product. Charles Dickens, as well as Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, did visit this area. And R. Singh's opium den was the most famous den in the day, so it can be speculated with some degree of certainty that they both knew at least of this place, and maybe even visited it, given that it was known to accommodate the social elite of the day. But with legal restrictions coming into place, R. Singh had to seek other ways to make his way in the world. He reportedly did give up smoking opium, though it was just days before he died in 1890 at the age of 64. Today, he can be found in the Bowie Cemetery, which is now known as Tower Hamlets Cemetery. The casual use of such an intoxicating drug certainly fascinates us in modern era. And while cinematic entertainment has certainly focused on the opium dens, the greater, far more horrifying aspect for us is the absolutely casual use of such a powerful narcotic for everyday use, especially with children. But then I guess that's why we have such an interest in such a fascinating time. And here endeth the episode. You can find me at victoriangaslamp.com. My contact details are on there as well. And you can follow me on Twitter at VicGaslamp. And more importantly, on Instagram, where I post historical facts and trivia as well as photos related to the episodes. I am at VictorianGaslamp, or one word, there as well. Thanks for listening and keep a lookout for new episodes. And as always, I'll see you next time under the gas lamp.